diversity in a corporate setting? Like, what does that mean to you? What should it mean? The approach to transformational change, culture change, just doesn't happen uh, with one intervention. It's just not learning. It's just not training. It is an entire systems approach to organizational change. Racism and inequality, they are systemic issues, right? Like they don't just exist in certain sectors of our society. Equity peace allows an organization to raise the hood. Right there, because it's easy and because it's understaffed and it's undervalued. And like you said, there is maybe not the accountability in place. Um, we perpetuate a problem. Diversity is about the count. Inclusion is about how to make the count matter. Equity is about ensuring that there is fairness. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the 30-Minute CMO. I'm Gorsha Huchua. I recently sat down with my longtime friend and mentor on issues of diversity, Albert Smith. Albert and I first met during our university days in the early 2000s. After getting his master's at Vanderbilt, Albert served as the principal strategist in the areas of diversity and inclusion at the National Institutes of Health, and later as corporate diversity and inclusion consultant at Cook Ross. Currently, Albert leads the DNI practice at Chemonics International in Washington, D.C., and consults other organizations in areas of diversity and inclusion through his own consultancy called InMass. In this episode, Albert and I go deep into areas of diversity, inclusion, equity, and the responsibility of organizations to foster these elements, not just inside their offices, but in the communities they inhabit. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Here's the episode. Albert, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Gorsha. It's wonderful to join you. Um, so you and I go a long way back, but um, your new venture and mass, um, well, it's new for you from what I understand. So um, I'd love to hear its origin story because I'm sure it's based on your professional experiences in various sectors, as well as probably a surge in demand for your expertise. So in your words, how did you get to this point? You know, um, I, it's, it's really funny because uh, the, um, the development of this brainchild, I suppose, really uh, started a number of years ago, quite honestly. Uh, I was in industry working uh, in government in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space and uh, really had a hunger to understand the work of diversity and inclusion from the perspective of uh, what are other industries doing, right? And uh, at the time, I was presented with a wonderful opportunity to begin that process of testing a little bit uh, the waters to see exactly uh, what other institutions were um, committed to in the space of diversity and inclusion uh, through an opportunity to become a consultant. Mm -hmm. And so I left industry in a role uh, where I was an individual contributor 
uh, helping to develop uh, plans of action, action plans for a particular population of people at the National Institutes of Health. That population happened to be uh, sexual and gender minority employees, uh, LGBT employees. And so uh, I had that industry experience, that exposure, but again, there was this hunger to really begin to kind of expand and expose myself to the world of consultancy with the ultimate goal, Gorsha, of one day becoming a chief diversity officer. Um, and, and, and that was very intentional because I felt that in um, to have a really good handle of how to be an effective DNI practitioner, the more data I had going into that role, the better off I would be. And that, that data could not just simply be my own unique experiences in one role, but it needed to be the kind of cross-sectorial experiences, cross-industry experiences. And that's what consulting provided me. Consulting provided me that space to be in conversation with uh, a number of industries and sectors um, and a number of executives in these industries and sectors really kind of uh, engaging in conversation and understanding a little bit more fully around what some of their challenges were and also providing me the opportunity to build out interventions and strategies to solve for those problems, right? And so it was a wonderful opportunity then to uh, have that first person uh, experience with consulting and ultimately to take that into, uh, once again, a more formal role as a chief diversity officer. But that, that, that love for consulting, <laughs> I couldn't shake. And so, of course, once I ended up back in the formal setting, um, I, I wanted to stay connected. I wanted to stay connected both within and outside of my, my day job, my nine to five in that respect. And so uh, I started this whole notion of Unmas uh, as a way to stay connected to other industries all while you know, refining my skills and my abilities and uh, really leading the cause within an organization. You know, what, what you're saying, I think I, it resonates with me because um, I come from the advertising and marketing side. And um, when you work in one organization, you become very familiar with it, uh, but it's also a bit of an echo chamber, right? When you're a consultant, and I was in advertising agencies, uh, you see problems and in various ways of working that companies across industries, um, you know, experience, and then uh, it forms ideas in your head on, on how to cross pollinate from what Absolutely. the entertainment industry is maybe doing or not doing well, and how that can apply to finance and how that can apply to retail. So I think, I think that's what gave you the bug, right? To yeah, and cross pollination. And I see the manifestations of that in my work, right? So mm -hmm. I'm thinking about you know solutions or interventions to uh, challenges that we're confronting in my in my current role as a chief diversity officer, I am thinking about uh, how other institutions uh, that were confronted with similar problems, how we solve for those problems, and imagining what that would look like uh, in a more culturally relevant and specific way to my current organization. And so 
that's that was really wonderful. And then of course I I love frameworks, and so consulting you know really uh, orients your thinking to uh, problem solving through frameworks. Quite honestly, right. and I see big, I see the big picture often. And so those were skills that I uh, were I was introduced to as a consultant and certainly uh, skills that I now take on in my current role. Yeah, I think, you know what would be interesting? Um, let's define diversity in the context of a chief diversity officer, because I think it'll help us frame the conversation where the audience here is uh, people in business. Um, and so how would, you just, how would you define diversity in a corporate setting? Like, what does that mean to you? What should it mean in general? Yeah, I mean, diversity is, I, I often say that diversity is the count. We're talking representational numbers. We're talking uh, how we account for uh, various groups of um, people within the workplace, particularly those that are uh, covered under Title VII, quite honestly, uh, under the EEO. So race, gender, um, and now sexual orientation. I, I'm, 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 I, I think it's sexual orientation. I stand correctly corrected there, but that's how we think about diversity. Diversity is to count. Inclusion, which is, of course, a complementary piece to uh, this equation, is how do we now make that count matter, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, how do we uh, ensure that the diverse representations that we have within our workplace are given, the are enabled to uh, really bring their gifts and their treasures to the work that they do and uh, ensure that they are valued and appreciated in the, in the process and respected in the process. So diversity is about the count. Inclusion is, of course, how do you make that count matter? I think that the, the framework really helps then define the, the rest of the conversation because um, I think some some organizations, um, and I don't know. I know from my experience uh, working for government organizations, they're very orient, numbers oriented. Um, and I'm not here to speak about the inclusion portion and how that matters. But I know that they're very, you know, they're given given certain metrics they need to achieve across a broad range of diversity initiatives, and they have to hit them. I'm not sure how that translates to corporate sectors. Uh, because I'm sure every company and every board sets its own objectives. But in general, I think the framework really helps. Um, I want to kind of roll this back to maybe a higher level, and then we can drill down into a few of these areas. Um, the higher level, I guess, is that uh, in this country and in many other countries as well, but speaking about the U.S. specifically, racism and inequality, they are systemic issues, right? Like they don't just exist in certain sectors of our society. So it seems that the impact of any changes that are made at any specific stage, so like let's say in the corporate setting, it'll be recruitment and promotion, those will be limited and not as widespread if the underlying societal issues aren't addressed, right? Mm -hmm. So what do you think of this and how do you think businesses now should think about addressing not just the immediate changes within their four walls, um, but in the communities and societies that they inhabit? Yeah, I think that that's where the equity piece comes into the conversation, right? Uh, because if diversity is about the count, inclusion is about how to make the count matter, equity is about ensuring that there is fairness, mm -hmm. right? 
And so how do we, how do we go about ensuring that there is fairness in an organization is by interrogating our systems, our processes, our practices to ensure that they're not creating disparate impacts for groups of people based on uh, any particular dimension of difference, whether that is race or gender, that certain groups of people aren't experiencing uh, disadvantages because of their identity and that we are creating uh, opportunities, equal employment opportunities for all individuals, regardless of who they are, who they love, you know, where they come from, the languages they speak and things of that sort. So for me, equity is really how we ensure that the diversity and the inclusion works together. Mm -hmm. Absent of that, we have no way of measuring uh, our progress. Equity is the accountability piece to this equation that ensures that we are constantly vigilant and that we are constantly reassessing and addressing the barriers that might be creating disparate impact for employees. So as a company, how do you approach equity? Because if, it, if it's not just if it's not just, if it's in and outside of your walls, I'm kind of thinking more in practical terms, I guess, but is this um, where you start investing in community initiatives? Is this when you start becoming a partner to, to the community organizations that are surrounding you? Like what, how, how do you help and, move that needle? It is, it is both and, right? Um, the approach to transformational change, culture change just doesn't happen uh, with one intervention. It's just not learning. It's just not training. Mm -hmm. It is an entire systems approach to organizational change that has to happen. Meaning, again, the equity piece allows an organization to raise the hood, to look at every aspect of their business, to identify where there are potential uh, challenges, potential barriers impacting certain groups of people. And so when we're trying to operationalize this, this means taking and looking at uh, how we're recruiting from the, from, the, from the very moment in just the talent bucket alone, right? From the very moment in which we uh, decide that we're going to create a position, how are we thinking about that role? What are the qualifications that we are uh, uh, committing on paper right. that we're expecting of a potential candidate? Where we are posting that job description, right? You know, are we ensuring that, you know, if we're nine times out of 10, it's going to be online, do, you know, people with disabilities have access to that information, right? Like, really kind of taking and evaluating all of the data that we get there are so many there are so many moving pieces to just posting posting a job description right that can be evaluated to determine if there are practices that we are engaged in that very well might be perpetuating a kind of bias that's ultimately disadvantaging certain groups of people. 
You know, I think I think I think that point is so interesting because as you're speaking about this, you know, we you know, just taking the recruitment part of it, um, there are the whole industry has sprung up that makes one-click recruitment um, through technology uh, right. the preferred method uh, for many recruiters and many companies. And if you think about this, right, even in my own experience, um, HR and recruitment offices are often understaffed inside the companies. Uh, which creates an incentive to use a platform or platforms that make it easy Absolutely. Uh, to go and fulfill a recruitment requirement. Um, those platforms who are more likely than not developed by um, folks in Silicon Valley, and we're not going to, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, think, I, I think it's pretty known, right? Male, probably non-African-American, probably like not a minority, you know, like they aren't, even if they don't think they have biases, they are, these platforms are designed with biases in mind. They're designed to reach out to people who are equipped with technology, who have access, blah, 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 right? So right there, because it's easy and because it's understaffed and it's undervalued, and like you said, there is maybe not the accountability in place, um, we perpetuate a problem. Absolutely, absolutely. Um... And that's where um, the, uh, the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion comes into, uh, into play and where, where it has its most value, right? Yeah. It gives us the opportunity to look at certain business practices and identify where there is, there's implicit bias or unconscious bias and begin to uh, work towards solving for how we can mitigate that, eliminate that, and create a fair uh, opportunity, create fair opportunities for uh, all employees. And so, yeah, I think because inherently we're biased, you know, in nature, that's, that's who we are. And when there are a, a set of circumstances that make it easy for us to default to our biased thinking, such as not having adequate staff in your HR department and having and and, and, and and overloading that staff with a number of jobs that are coming online and having to you know sift through the applications, people are inherently going to default to what they know so that they can move on. Yeah. So the barrier in that particular situation is an operational barrier that says if we want better outcomes, Perhaps we need to think about how we staff our organizations to ensure that we're creating, you know, uh, 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 a, a fair opportunity to actually evaluate applications so that people aren't simply defaulting back to that way of thinking in that respect. So it's, it's an entire kind of systems level uh, uh, project that has to take place if we are truly committed to doing this work. A lot of organizations, I'll say this, Gorsha, a lot of organizations, they talk a good talk, right? Uh, and, and this is where I kind of, kind of uh, harken back to my uh, days in government. You know, uh, the private sector looks at government as just being dated, right? Like, oh, they don't know what they're doing. They're not innovating. Let me tell you something. I think government uh, is really good with uh, things like um, assessing data around EDA, quite honestly. I think that they too, those organizations, whether it is the Office of EEO, 
uh, or the Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion are woefully understaffed as well. And the, um, the number, you know, just the number of employees that they have to manage is really, really, really a lot in that respect. But ultimately, how they go about doing barrier analysis, you know, to identify where there are potential uh, 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 in, uh, issues in an organization that might be creating disparate impact for employees is absolutely phenomenal. And the reason that private industry doesn't do it because it takes a lot of time. Like to just simply investigate one potential uh, 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 issue in your organization, applying a barrier analysis that the government uses to that one to that one issue you know you have to work through like the scientific method you have to come up with a hypothesis you have to validate it you know you have to identify whether or not it is a barrier or if it is a trigger and if it is a trigger you have to create a whole communications plan to communicate to your population to your community that it is just a trigger and not a barrier Mm -hmm. I want to pause there to give you, to clarify what do I mean by triggers and barriers, because I think that this is really important. Because I know a lot of people talk about barriers often, right? Like barriers to uh, equal employment opportunity, they look to data and they say, ha, here it is. This is the barrier. No, that's not the barrier. That data point just simply says you need to look over here. Mm -hmm. That data point is really beckoning you in some respect to engage in you know interrogation investigation in that respect so you need to investigate what you are hypothesizing is a barrier and in so doing you might discover that that is not a barrier but a trigger for example think of it this way you work in a um a, a, a stem field right and you are interested in increasing the representation of, say, African-American women with degrees in physics. Currently, your workforce is comprised of maybe 10 African-American women physicists. Mm -hmm. And you look around and you recognize that there is, they're being outnumbered by the number of physicists in your organization. So you go to your HR and you say, we need diverse talent. We want to see more women, women of color, African-American women in this particular uh, role at our company. Your HR person gets on it, right? Mm -hmm. And they go out and they begin to advertise at universities all around the country, trying to find these African-American women who are uh, 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 who hold physics degrees to no avail to no success can they find it so they come back and they say there is i can't find any african-american women and they're saying but we know that there are african-american women that are out there with phds or, or with, with 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 degrees in physics mm -hmm. go back out and look they go back out and look. Now, the interesting thing about this process is the only data that they're using is their organizational intuition, right? Like they probably have not began to investigate 
what the pipeline says about African-American women who are physicists, because if they simply went and checked the civilian labor force data, they could find out how many African-American women who have degrees in physics are in the marketplace. So they go and they finally find how many African-American women who have degrees in physics are in the, in, the, in, the, in the workplace. And they discover that in total, there are 15 African-American women with degrees in physics in the workplace. And this organization has 10 of them. So what was initially assumed to be a barrier actually uncovered, uncovers for that organization a success story because out of the 15 people that are in the civilian labor force, you have 10. You have 10 African-American women who have physics degrees. How are you doing it? What are you doing to attract that group of women? Because that in and of itself is a case study. Can that now be replicated in your organization or other groups? But do you think, uh, using this very example, do you think that realization, which would probably come as a shock to the company, would make it incumbent on them to invest in increasing the overall? Now program? you're talking, Gorsha. Now you're talking. So when we're talking about a systems-wide approach to addressing a problem, such as low participation rates of African-American women who have physics degrees in the marketplace, we can now begin to say, what do we need to do as a corporation to invest in education at an earlier age, build strong pipelines in the community, in the communities in which these, these, these young girls are being raised, and in the elementary schools and middle schools and high schools in which they are attending, to usher them into physics as a degree interest in college. Right. And ultimately, we have a relationship with them and they see our organization as an employer of choice in the future. That takes time and commitment to relationship and not transaction. A lot of businesses are just transactional. They're not interested in relationships. And when you're interested in relationships, you are actually doing the work of understanding what are the community needs, leveraging your influence by creating opportunities, increasing your brand presence in those communities, whereby you build an allegiance to those girls who are now women who are now looking for jobs. It's, it's, it's just mind blowing to me. It, it just makes sense. Well, I think, I think that's, I think that's why I, you know, one of the questions I had written down, but I think you can almost like remake it into a statement at this point is, do you think that companies are being performative when they come out and say something, you know, right now, because what you're describing is kind of, I think we both, you know, harkening back to our academic backgrounds, know that change takes time, real change takes time. A colleague of yours um, told, uh, told me when I asked her, you know, is this something is, are they, you know, do, do you think what's happening now is going to have an impact like the Me Too movement, you know, in terms of its longevity? She's like, well, 
is the Me Too movement uh, going to have longevity? Because it's only a couple of years to me. Longevity means 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you know? So what we're talking about is um, an investment in re of resources over a long period of time. Absolutely. So, you know, many companies are getting this criticism for not matching their words with actions when it comes to hiring and promotion. But I think the true criticism, if there is criticism to, um, to, to have, I mean, that, that's definitely one part, but it's what are you doing beyond the immediate? Yeah. What investments are you making to ensure, like in the scenario we described, that those pipelines exist, that opportunities at an early age are being afforded to uh, diverse, diverse populations? And um, I don't, I'm sure there are some companies who do this and do this well. And um, I assume those are the ones who've been around for 100 years and maybe have started investing this into in these things in a, you know, a while from now, but maybe not, you know, like, so my question is, you know, you pointed to the government being pretty, pretty, pretty good. Um, what's your sense? Like, are they being, are we, you know, is, is corporate America being performative because they're trying to focus on like an immediate solution rather than like a systemic change? Like what's, how do we, how do we unpack what's happening? Yeah. Transformational change takes time and effort. And uh, corporate, corporations are driven by, by the market, right? And so when the market swings in a different direction, there goes the attitudes, the commitments in that new direction. Um, and so we have, to be, we have to be mindful of that. There are, there are you know, and I would say um, that isn't to say that we can't begin to cultivate in institutions uh, new behaviors to think about uh, what it would require to create long-term sustainable systemic change in, in, you know, in the world. Uh, that if we could take these, these moments and make them movement moments and not just fleeting moments, I, I do believe that uh, we can cultivate a new uh, awareness, uh, new behaviors, uh, on how we might be able to tackle some of these uh, societal issues that we're having. And I, I, you know, I want to kind of go back to say that um, why it becomes so, so important for organizations to do this is because there is, in fact, a uh, somewhat corrosion of uh, uh, social safety nets in, the in, 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 in this country, right? Uh, and you know, whether it is um, uh, public school systems that are, you know, pretty bankrupt in that respect, mm -hmm. and corporations having to step in and adopt schools, because what we know is that talent will ultimately be talent in the, in the, in, in, in the pipeline in the marketplace, or whether it is organizations having to step in and provide uh, leverage their influence and their power to uh, provide opportunities for, you know, feeding communities, whatever the case might be. That corporate social responsibility piece is so important because what organizations must acknowledge is that their success has been due largely in part to the communities in which they find themselves, you know, headquartered in that respect. Like, I'm, I'm in Washington, D.C. right now, 
you know, uh, the, the Navy Yards in DC, you know, 15 years ago uh, was a, um, a, a place that was desolate without any, you know, uh, any businesses, any commerce happening in that area. And a lot of black people lived in that area. And over the years, that area has gone through gentrification, uprooting people. And so what becomes the responsibility of the corporations, the businesses that have now located to those areas in ensuring that uh, we acknowledge that uh, we are occupying a place that has been historically uh, a place for populations of people and we want to develop the area, but what then is our commitment to this community and this group of, these groups of people that we are dislocating as a result of you know, increasing taxes and things of that sort. Right. So we do have an obligation. We have to think differently about how organizations, businesses leverage their influence to create the kind of change in the world that we need to see. And so it is a responsibility of businesses to do this work in light of the fact that the government is uh, not funding these social safety nets in a way that is livable for a lot of people, whether it is food stamps or whatever you might 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 call it, housing or whatever. Do you think? Do you think um, in order to avoid the inevitable cycles driven by the markets, et cetera. Um, these concepts should be legislated so that companies are, you know, should EEO be strengthened or expanded in order to kind of formalize these frameworks? I, I don't think that EEO has to be, I think that, you know, when we're talking about uh, equal employment opportunities and practices that create uh, a fair, just, equitable workplace, they just need to be enacted more. You know? I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't think that there is. There's something new that we have to do. The whole concept of uh, having EO uh, as uh, an, an aspect, uh, as an accountability factor in business, in and of itself, is innovative. I just think that uh, organizations have to really um, uh, be thoughtful and not just. You know, th there are things that we do in businesses. Uh, each year, uh, we submit our uh, affirmative action numbers to the EEO, right? And the EEO provides us with that, that you know, we're, we're to do an, an assessment of our EEO data in our organizations. And where we have identified gaps, we have to set into place affirmative action plans. We should not be taking those affirmative action plans lightly. Mm -hmm. We actually should be, once again, applying a scientific method to solving for what that data is showing us so that we are intentional about eliminating barriers to equal employment organizations. So there's nothing new that has to be done. We just need to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I'm sure that um, right now you're hearing um, your consultancies, hearing from clients, from businesses, right? Uh, a lot about the help in in doing it. So are there like focus areas right now that are emerging um, in terms of like the questions that are being asked for like the, the request for help, the screams for help? 
Yeah, I think I think everyone um, at the moment uh, there, you know, uh, their their amygdala has been hijacked, and they're operating out of uh, out of kind of fear, right? Like right. help, 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 and they're making these uh, proclamations about you know what their commitments are going to be to uh, racial equity. I hear a lot about racial equity. I'm like half of the organizations that are you know, talking about racial equity, don't know the diff- don't even know what racial equity is, right? Like they, they don't know. I cannot tell you how many organizations I've been in conversation with uh, that use equity in any quality interchangeably, you know? And just in my listening there, it alludes to the lack of knowledge and in that sense, it can be interpreted as being performative, mm-hmm. right? And so, again, when we're talking about systems-wide change, uh, things have to happen um, uh, in parallel with one another. Um, uh, things are going to intersect with one another and overlap with one another. We have to be open to that. Uh, just that acknowledgement alone uh, will help inform how we move the needle further, right? So when we're talking about um, creating a equitable, uh, uh, an equitable workforce uh, for African-Americans or for Black employees, it requires a multi-pronged approach. It just can't be training. And I believe, Gorsha, organizations need to be trained on racial equity, right? Like I do believe that there's training, but training alone will not solve for it. There has to be other elements, the framework, the equity framework that I believe are essentially three things. Number one, inclusion acumen. That's really where the training happens. You know, we're building uh, uh, capacity, we're building capabilities in that respect. The second one is systems and institutions. That's where we are uh, really exposing where there are potential barriers in the workplace. And then the last one happens to be leadership commitments and accountability. It is just not enough, okay, for leaders to espouse things. Where does it show up in their performance management? Mm-hmm. In their PMAP? How is what we say? being reinforced by what we do. And how do you link your probably incentive structures to make sure that it's backed up? Absolutely, absolutely. So leadership, accountabilities, inclusion acumen, which is building our capabilities, our understanding, whether that is, you know, intentional developmental opportunities that we're having, whether that's training, trainings that we're creating, conversations that we're having, whatever the case might be. And then the last thing is systems and institutions really looking at where there may be some uh, potential uh, barriers in your organization and solving for those things. You know, let me ask you, I have uh, two final questions, but one, you know, you, we've just covered um, the needs, uh, what the building blocks, 
is there a gold standard that companies should aspire to? Is there one or several that we can look up to and say they're doing it right? I would say that there are, um, from my experience, you know, as a consultant, I've had some exposure to uh, organizations that do it well. Um, and the organizations that do it well are organizations that are really kind of focused on those three elements of mm -hmm. you know, systems, uh, leadership accountabilities, and growing employee capabilities around issues related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of Target, quite honestly. I think that uh, Target really gets it. Mm -hmm. uh, Target has been in this work now for a very long time, and they've made uh, tremendous uh, commitments, commit tremendous contributions to this work, um, and you feel it in how uh, customers respond to Target, right? Uh, <laughs> like, like real talk, I think about Target and people love Target, right? Because there's just something in their, uh, in the zeitgeist, in the culture of Target that says there is fidelity to what they say and what they do, right? So I think Target is a great, a great example. I also think, you know, Nielsen Ratings is a really wonderful example of uh, an organization uh, that has done rather, 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 rather amazing work in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And perhaps that might just be driven by the fact that they are a data-driven organization, right? And they really turn to data to inform how they think about uh, transformational change. Uh, so I think that Nielsen is another great example. Uh, but there are, there are quite a few institutions, you know, big and small. We don't have to look at the large institutions uh, to see what's, what's happening. We can look at some of the smaller institutions. Procter & Gamble is a great example uh, of uh, an organization that has uh, been doing this work of diversity and inclusion uh, for a very long time. Procter & Gamble, I think it's my understanding that they were the first industry, the first organization to create employee resource groups for black people in the country, right? And here we are, you know, you know, 30 years, 40 years since, you know, uh, the Civil Rights Act, right? And you have an organization like Procter & Gamble who's been doing this work for, for a very long time. Now, nothing is perfect, Gorsha, you know? Uh, and very similar to uh, when uh, the, uh, Congress changes, the presidency change, the changing of the guards, uh, the values and the commitments might shift from president to president in these organizations, they have track records. And so when you look at them, you know, uh, I guess you could say, when you're looking at the trend data, you know, I think that you'll find that they've been doing, they've been doing well. Albert, are you feeling optimistic or pessimistic about this moment in our history? Man, let me tell you, I am, I'm on fire, quite honestly. I think that there, that we're at such uh, a wonderful moment right now to, to really, to really transform society, quite honestly. 
And so I am extremely optimistic. Change will not happen with um, us sitting on our hands. You know, I think about, I think about um, uh, the saying that um, uh, our freedom, you know, is hammered on the anvil of dissent, debate, and uh, uh, disagreement, essentially, right? And so the more we're able to have conversations, the more we're able to foster conversations like this, the more we're able to hammer out what freedom actually looks like. And it requires that we um, are uncomfortable at times, right? And that we lean into this discomfort. I feel right now, Gorsha, that uh, a lot of institutions are experiencing a bit of discomfort. Good, good. Right. You should be there. If you know your black, if your black employees are looking at you with the side eye, you should feel a little discomfort right now. Good. Right. And you should take that feeling and look inward to ask, what am I contributing to this conversation? And if that contribution, or is that contribution a contribution that aligns with what I say? Yeah. So there's a lot of there's a lot of possibility out here right now to really create, to really uh, imagine um, what the next century can look like here, particularly even for businesses. You know, right now organizations ought to be focused on innovation in their talent management system. Burn it up, start over. If you need to, right? You know, I, I hear out in the streets, people are calling for, you know, the abolishment of the police force. We should be trying to abolish some of these badass systems in our organization right now. Taking us back to the initial conversation, right? They're yeah. ingrained. And um, just because they're simple doesn't mean that, I mean, it actually means that they contribute to the status quo. And if we are really committed to, to changing it, start start revisiting at least at least from there absolutely because those systems can very well reinforce bad behavior absolutely. right i can be i could want to do well but if in so doing well i'm reprimanded because the system is a bad system then eventually i'm going to result back to doing bad behavior because bad behavior is what gets rewarded yeah so fix your system Fix your system. You'll never be able to change people's behavior. Behavior modification has to happen when there are systems that are re-engineering how people engage with one another. You know, we think about the systems of law. You know, King understood this in the 1960s and other leaders of the modern civil rights movement understood this in the 1960s and in the 1940s and in the 1950s and in the 1930s that if we are going to enfranchise black people or if we're going to create a, 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 a future for black people we have to do it through law that's the system because trying to change the mindsets of people 
without the positive reinforcement of good laws, policies, practices, will never get us what we want, the kind of outcome that we want. So we change behaviors through learning and education. We really change the world through reimagining, recre recreating uh, our systems. And if you're listening to this show, and if you want to audit and start reimagining the systems you have in place, Albert Smith is your guy. Give him, oh. a, give him a call. Um, because, uh, because this is, this is work that some people are very well equipped to do. And, um, and he's definitely one of them. So Albert, you know, thank you so much for joining me in this conversation. Um, I am too excited about this moment um, because I feel like there's an, we've reached an inflection point and um, it's just the matter of what we do with it. Uh, you can very much squander moments away. Um, and I've lived through those times in history um, where people have, um, let's not make it a case of that. Let's make this a force for positive change. Absolutely. And we do it together. We endeavor together. This was my conversation with Albert Smith, founder and principal of NMS Consulting. I hope you enjoyed the episode and see you next time on the 30 Minute CMO.